Welcome back to our podcast within a podcast, pottering around the extra concentrated ghost of Mangum Reads. We are three muggles who certainly have friends who would dance naked in front of Percy wearing Dobby's tea cozy. My name is Sarah. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host BJ and Spencer. How are you all doing? Are you saying this podcast is dead multiple times over to concentrate <laughs> our uh, a spirit? Um Yes, although now it is now that it is unmoored from a corporeal form, it just um it floats out into the world. Yes. So every now, every now and then you make me think about my friend group in ways I would prefer not to think about as to how many of my friends would actually do that without any degree of prompting whatsoever. Pod- the number is many. Podcast by day, therapy by night. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Full on career. Um, so we are um, on chapter 21 of Harry Potter and the are. Goblet of Fire, the House Elf Liberation Front. And um, we have some segments that we do here. We have a rapid fire recap, um, BJ's Wizard Wheezes, Newbie's Notes with Spencer, we award house points, and um, then there are questions and queries um, that will be answered, I suppose. <laughs> well, as we always start things off, uh, Sarah, we've had an increasing run of long chapters of Harry Potter. Yeah. Like, some of these probably being among the longest chapters we've ever had. Yes. This one's a little shorter. It's a lot shorter. I mean, this is like a minute 15 recap. Well, luckily, you don't get to decide that anymore, BJ. Shut (laughs) up. You can just wait for your own segment. Mm. Do you have a a reasonable goal or approximation for what you're going for when it comes to this chapter? I am going to go for 155 again. It is, by pages, a shorter chapter, although it is still 21 pages, and that is what now qualifies as short. Um, But there are, like, several scenes that at least need to be touched on in this chapter, so there's not a whole lot to be left out. It is a chapter that feels like it's building up to one important moment at the end with a lot of... Going about the day of life to get there. Yes. Okay. Well, the stopwatch is over on the other side of the room, and I can't leave screen because, you know, professional. <laughs> but I do have a cell phone that we're going to time on this time. Problem is, you won't be able to see it. Oh, no. Okay. Well. Won't be able to see it. You can't no, hold I'm it not, up. I'm, I'm not that screen? dexterous. To hold, hold in touch at the same time. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, right. yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. When, when you're ready, though. Both Sirius and Ron need filling in after the first task, so they head up to the Owlery to fetch Pigwidgeon. Plus, there's a party for Harry in the Gryffindor common room where everyone insists he opened the golden egg. He flips it open, and there's nothing inside, but it does make a terrific howling din, and Fred demands he shut it immediately. There's a lot of speculation about what it might be or mean, but the party goes on, with Hermione very interested in how Fred and George get to the kitchens to get the food. They're not happy with the idea of Hermione causing trouble among the house elves, but Neville has accidentally gotten hold of one of their canary creams and turns into a bird. As winter approaches, they're still on scroots, which have greatly diminished in numbers, and uh, they're in the midst of dealing with the fallout of learning that the creatures have no interest in hibernating when Rita Skeeter shows up. She's angling for an interview with Hagrid, and it does not feel good. Harry, Ron, and Hermione are worried about Skeeter's track record of twisting words to make a better story, and Hagrid's record of getting creatures from questionable sources, but there's nothing they can do now. Divination is a joke now, again, now that uh, Ron's back on his side. Hermione shows up with news. She leads them to the picture of the giant fruit, tickles the pear, and takes them into the kitchens, where they find Dobby. He is decked out in all kinds of bizarre clothes. Dumbledore gave Dobby and Winky jobs, but Dumbledore is, or I'm sorry, but Winky is a mess. Her clothes are stained and she bursts into tears when they try to talk to her. 
Um, Dobby fills them in on finding work. It wasn't easy because he now wants paid. The other house elves find this deeply embarrassing. He teamed up with Winky to get to Hogwarts, where Dumbledore was happy to pay Dobby, although Dobby negotiated him down from 10 galleons a week. Winky, will, uh, Winky refused to sink so low, and she will not hear Hermione speak ill of Mr. Crouch, even though she's not bounded by him anymore. When Hermione tells Winky they've seen Mr. Crouch, she rails against Bagman and insists that Mr. Crouch can't function without her. Ron wins points with Dobby by offering him his Christmas sweater, and the house elves send them out with armfuls of treats. Hermione's convinced that Dobby will be a good influence on the other house elves, but Ron and Harry aren't so sure. And um, then there's something else that happens. <laughs> Great ending, yes. Lies. Lies. <laughs> Where were we before that? Nope, nope. I'm the timekeeper. Timekeeper nope. decided. Thanks, nope. Disagree. I am Counts. subtracting three seconds from this, whatever it is. Well, great. It was 153.01. Perfect. So it is outside the bounds. Nope. No, so it's, it's not. Five seconds to 155 uh-huh. goal. Uh-huh. Yep. E- even if you d- subtracted the three seconds, it's not outside the bounds. Yep. Mm. So go ahead and subtract your three seconds, BJ. Where, where, where's your, did you already clear it? Yep, already did- cleared it. Uh-huh. This is another one of those... Uh... There is no record. The, the the body cam footage has been deleted <laughs> by accident. So what was the time? You said 153.51? 153.02. Okay. That was awfully suspect. Listen, that, that yeah. was yeah. I've had some there awfully... Was, you've had there some... is less hand-waving in Harry Potter spells than just occurred right there. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. We have no record of this. I watched it happen. You didn't watch anything happen. The phone was down. Uh-huh. Well, Sarah, congratulations on your two points. Well earned. BJ, we move on to Wizard Wheezes. Okay, well, a little bit of my wheezing was spoiled by our intro, um, but extra concentrated ghosts are a very funny thing to uh, consider. Um, I wonder if the history of magic is going to happen with that, with a bunch of dying of uh, the professor a couple more times as he bores himself to death. <laughs> Ben's we'll, just we'll keeps see. getting. Do you get? Do you get like ghostlier, or do you get more? Hmm. What does the extra concentrated actually do to you? The protoplasm gets gooier. Got it. Um. So <laughs> we're we're gonna go back to something that that I know I've ghosts been talking work like about. old people mucus. Is that how that goes? Something like that. <laughs> okay. Or is it ectoplasm? There we go, ectoplasm. <laughs> mm. um, they'll, they'll eventually go down into an ecto cooler and you can drink it for free. So, oh! the ghost <laughs> going posters, on. Okay. Um, J.K. Rowling has an obsession with noses. I don't understand why. Um, Whose nose do we get this time? <laughs> we get two different noses um, of two different house elves. And they're mm. very, very different. Okay. One was a squashed tomato. Do I remember that right? Yes, squashed like tomato and a pencil. Okay. So uh, there, I do, well, I'm going to ask the question now. Do we get different nose uh, noses on house elves in the movies, or do they just go with sort of the same droopy, you know, pointed nose? So here's the thing about the movies. Mm-hmm. This whole subplot does not exist. Okay, so we pretty much only get Dobby. We get as Dobby, a house elf. and we do get an we do get another house elf. Um, I think he ends up showing up in the next book and in the next movie. Gotcha. Um, but he is significantly older than Dobby is. So now I'm trying to remember what they're. No- I'm going to look at these two okay. noses. I mean, and just we can see. eventually watch the movies. But yeah. I mean, the other side of it is, I do understand them probably not wanting to portray. Like a female house elf, if they are not wearing clothes and that's a thing, 
Um, it's a very weird thing. Okay. I um, The two noses on the two house elves that we do get are very different in the movies. Interesting. Well, glad to see they, they pick that up. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. Squash tomato nose is a very entertaining <laughs> way of referring to a nose. I'm, pic- um, I'm picturing boxer nose when it comes to that kind of description. Yeah, just and probably I probably smashed broken flat. I just hope that that didn't come from like some previous families. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that's most of what I have. I do like the the clothing descriptions. Uh, you know, the tea cozy hat seems like something that that you might be considering for for playing around with for uh, <laughs> next. You know, your next knitting project. Sure. But I, you know, Dobby is nothing if not exuberant in the world. Um, mm. These other house elves might be might be problematic, as you did, in fact, mention off pod, BJ, and we can certainly mm-hmm. talk about if you would like now or in questions, but um, Dobby is having the time of his life. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I'll mention it. So the descriptions of the plight of the house elves and some of the the characteristics they have and the way they speak are uncomfortably reminiscent of uh, the portrayal of black people in sort of, you know, those 30s to 50s era. Like you is, you know, using yeah. a lot of is instead of, you know, whatever other verb of being a couple of other mannerisms. And so it was just sort of a, I wonder if JK Rowling is like pulling from very obvious points to portray the plight of these characters in a way that in the U.S. is uncomfortable and in the U.K. just isn't a thing. So yeah, it's like, fine. doesn't hit the same way. I don't, yeah. It's, I mean, I don't know. The house elves are a sticky point. <laughs> they, they, they are in universe, too. It's Yeah. It, it, the fact that none of the other characters wanted to even really discuss their plight in some ways screams a little bit of, this is wrong and I don't want to think about it. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? And at the, at the same time, Hermione's fixation on them also screams like a white savior complex. So I just a bit. Yeah. Um, so there are all kinds of things going on with these little guys who seem to just want to make tea. Yeah. I'm not we, sure. We, we were having an off-camera discussion on the concept of adult themes put in YA. Right here. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes, uh, yeah, the, maybe a little shoehorned in, I suppose. But I am excited that we got to go to the kitchens in this chapter. Like, that's pretty cool. As the resident Hufflepuff, so am I. (laughs) Um, Also, a very noted uh, difference in different fantasy worlds. Uh, The the food descriptions here compared to (laughs) basically anything else other than maybe Lord of the Rings, where you basically get, it's filling, it's fine, it's wrapped in a leaf, what else do you want from me? You didn't get far enough to justify that statement. (laughs) Okay. So maybe I'm completely incorrect, and there are these magical descriptions of food in Lord of the Rings, Spencer. Some um, of the food has names. I learned the I learned the elven names of certain food. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's interesting. Like the descriptions that we get, it's just like oh, there are sweets and it's fine, mm-hmm. um, rather than the the very specific uh, things that we get from other authors. Um, well, maybe J.K. Rowling realized she didn't know how to eat anything and didn't want to put another spoon with a quartered <laughs> grapefruit. 
<laughs> there, there definitely could be that. I was also going to say the BMI of authors might lead to the difference uh, in, in food mm. descriptions yeah. between a lot of fantasy authors and J.K. Rowling. I, I will say that J.K. Rowling does, like at least in the last picture I saw of her, she presents as like a relatively normal-weighted yes. person in the world. Mm. Um, whereas, at, at least the one that I'm immediately thinking of, George Martin, uh, doesn't. Uh, similarly, Jordan, uh, did not, uh, mm-hmm. have a spelt, uh, a body, shall we say. It's interesting. If you, if you go back to, like, you know, the Tolkien and, um, era of fantasy, a lot of them were really svelte kind of guys in tweed suits. Mm-hmm. I feel like that there was just, I would love to see, like, the BMI over time of Hugo Award winners, just to see what... <laughs> <laughs> is there just a massive dome that is slowly going back downhill that happened in like the 60s and 70s and 80s? That is a prime Reddit data is beautiful right there. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be fun. Um, um, yeah, so so that's my wheezing for this uh, wizarding section. Spencer, right. dear newbie. Uh, uh, hearing Ron say, oh, we ought to have known that he was evil just felt so fun. Just because I feel like <laughs> It's a statement they can make about half the characters in this series. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, that character in the black suit that hides in shadows and keeps hissing at me. <laughs> Should have known he was evil. <laughs> but uh, apparently they're just, he's now reaching that conclusion when it comes to the headmaster of Durmstrang. I'm glad Ron eventually reached this point with us. Also, I like that Ron, just, I, I'm assuming that this is just the definition of an optimist versus a pessimist we see played out here. But Ron's statement of, well, you know what his evil plan is and you survived the first round. <laughs> Clearly you've thwarted it. Yeah, you're fine. It's all good. I'm willing to believe that even Ron doesn't fully believe this, but he's saying it while Hermione's basically saying the opposite of, you've clearly, if this was the first step, the other ones have to be worse. Who do you think is right in this situation? (laughs) It's an odd statement for a book that's ultimately rather upbeat, but I think we're leaning towards pessimism when it comes to that interpretation of events. Hmm. Uh, Pigwidgeon reaffirmed that he is the absolute best, and I will never hear anyone say otherwise. Uh, Ron clearly feels otherwise. (laughs) And this earns my continued ire towards Ron. But seeing Pigwidgeon just be let out of the cage and just happily hooting and buzzing around the room with the opportunity to be useful, and then saddled with a letter that's like, I think it was described as being like several times his size Mm -hmm. and weight, but he's Mm -hmm. just dropping 12 feet out of the window, but still happily hooting through the sky to deliver it to its intended destination. He has earned my heart and it will never (laughs) stop. Uh, The screaming egg caught me off guard. Yep, that was a surprise. Uh-huh. The, the um, mini thing, yeah. Neville's reaction, like like we talked about it earlier when uh, in the Unforgivable Curses chapter, mm-hmm. but I am now more sure than ever that Neville has some like really sad backstory. Neville lives with his grandmother. I yeah, there's probably a reason. Conclusion about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, um, and just um, to, to, to make it clear, Neville's, um, Neville's reaction, so Seamus thinks it might be banshees. Uh, Neville thinks mm-hmm. that it sounds like people being tortured. Yeah, from what, the what? Cruciatus curse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm already blanking on the name. What was the uh, Bogart was the name of the creature that summoned the thing you're most afraid of? Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the Bogart. Mm-hmm. Apparently the sound from this egg summons a reminder of what your most, you know, your deep most seated fear or terror or scarring moment in your life, maybe. Well, for Neville, I think it was like, similar sounds for everybody i think neville just i'm joking i'm not being yeah. serious but everyone everyone <laughs> defaulted to this was the worst sound i've ever heard yes. what is that in my mind yes right um i don't know like i 
I'm I'm unclear as to whether Neville had a particular insight or it was it's a terrible screaming and everybody was just attributing something to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say for sure. I, I agree that this this scene hammers home what we've been building up really several times in this book. Meaning, I'm thinking it's going to be very relevant later that Neville's ex- prior exposure to the Cruciatus curse and Cruciatus curse mm-hmm. butcher every every one of these spells whenever <laughs> I try to say them is something that haunts him and sticks with him to a degree that other people are even aware of it. Like it seems like you know our new professor of the dark arts is aware of why Neville has a negative history associated with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and probably like his histories and our is related to that is what i'm guessing um but i guess it it, it's nice and i think this is probably rewriting history a bit but it's nice that we're getting a little bit of insight into why neville is the way he is why Mm -hmm. neville's a bit of a nebbish yeah i mean clearly i mean ptsd is is he he needs help that isn't dumbledore being like Oh, well, it's good that you got through that. You know, let's do some exposure therapy. I guess that's a thing. As discussed, he needs help that may meet in certain categories of a professor inviting him for tea. Yeah. Yes. Uh, or just being able to hang out with his friends. I mean, to jump one a little bit, Neville laughing with everybody else when he turns into a canary with the canary creams mm-hmm. was adorable. Not just because it's funny that he just suddenly spouted feathers and then molted, but that he's enjoying it with everybody else and he's among friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can just see the progression of where everyone else just kind of viewed him as an outsider everybody else laughed at. Now he's a kid at the table that everybody's laughing with. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. really heartwarming, particularly for a Neville-like figure. And I think that, like, even in that scene, there were sort of two aspects to it. To, like, I think it could have still gone the way of their laughing at him if he didn't, in like, decide that he was being included. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I mean, so he's sort changed of a that, lot, like, yeah. Balance point of... Hopefully in the next book, he's a little bit more part of the crowd rather than just sort of the butt of the jokes. Mm-hmm. And pff, there's a lot of repeated themes you see in this, but this chapter just hammers home just proof in my mind that this world runs on playful schemers. <laughs> that playful schemers make all the new spells, they map all the halls, they plan all the routes, they help organize Norma Ray union organizing events, apparently. <laughs> it's... Fred and George make the world go around in ways that they don't fully intend, but the world goes with them. And I feel like we also get an insight like into the past that this was always the case. I mean, very clearly, Dumbledore still has that, and Harry's dad, and uh, like they made the map, mm-hmm. and so like this is a continual thing that yeah. um, I mean. They're clearly not functioning members of society, otherwise they'd have jobs at the Ministry of Magic, but... Their impishness makes society move in a way that otherwise it would be stagnant. Yes. Yes. Um, Which is also sort of interesting to think about, and maybe this will be part of my questions, which is magic had to have been very different hundreds of years ago because of like the clear progress that we've seen even within the narrative history of these cu- couple of books mm-hmm. that it would it would have been a much weirder thing. Uh, uh, let's ponder that one question. That's a really fun one to talk out because I have my own little theories about why some of that may be. Um, the comparisons between Hagrid's class and certain aspects of the book series Dune are starting to become more apparent to me. One of the key things in Dune, this, which is a wonderful series by Frank Herbert, if people haven't read it, um, is that... If you, the more deadly, dangerous, and hostile a world that you are born on and survive, the more badass you are. And it seems that Hagrid's class runs on the same terms. 
Of where, if you survive it. If you survive the experience of hurting and attempting to put in little down pillows the blasted scroots, you will be a stronger wizard as a result. This screams Dumbledore philosophy for, for student training. Is that let Hagrid do whatever the hell he wants, the increasingly dangerous creatures. I may lose three a year, but you know, them's the works. The rest will be much more well-equipped co- well to confront whatever life throws at them. I, I also imagine that Madame Pomfrey is just getting pissed, more and more pissed at Hagrid at the students that show up like on a regular basis after his class every single time because I mean we get a number of named and, and unnamed basically students that that have all sorts of uh wounds that I'm sure is going to be in the next major, you know, probably not front page but real close daily profit. Yeah. I feel like <laughs> Madame Pomfrey wants wants Hagrid to go back to the flobberworms. That was Yeah. <laughs> flobberworms were okay. That was a good series of lessons for her. <laughs> Her life goes between hippogriffs, flobble worms, and blast ended screws. Mm-hmm. One of those was okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know what uh, Hagrid has next. We'll see. Oh, God. <laughs> Meanwhile, I, you know, while she's freaking out and Hagrid's content himself in the background, I picture Dumbledore in the corner just nodding, going, Someday these children will be able to kill Sardaukar, and it's all worth it. <laughs> uh, let's see here. I still cannot accept Rita Skeeter's fashion sense in wizard robes. It doesn't work. She is dressed like a 1980s, you know, kind of high fashion reporter. It's the theme they're going with here. Mm-hmm. And yep. it, whenever they say, and robes, it shatters it for me. Yeah, they just, they, they drop that for the movies, which is honestly an excellent aesthetic choice. She yeah. has an alligator purse and robes. <laughs> no. And magenta with purple colored robes. It, it's, it's a thing. It's loud. Um... <laughs> I just imagine, like, basically, J.K. Rowling, like, was observing the worst house dresses uh, (laughs) that she could and then putting them on Rita Skeeter and then calling it a day. So we have, I have taken a a lot of time to not, um, Spencer, to not, like, put specific actors or actresses in your head for the movies. Mm -hmm. I do think that... um, I think that you can do Rita Skeeter without that being too big of a thing because they think it's a better portrayal. So I'm going to drop a picture in the chat here in a second. Please. Appreciate it. Um, While you're finding that, um, I want to hear the WWE official commentary of Hagrid doing what are essentially aerial wrestling moves to put (laughs) blasted screws into submission. It's just him just leaping up elbow to bring down this thing, leaving it partially squished, but apparently enough intact to survive because, of course, it's a Hagrid creature, is a hell of a visual that I want to have. Mm -hmm. I want to read Rita Skeeter's commentary on that particular event as she was there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I also wonder, like, how much of this actually translates to the movies. I feel like a lot of these things kind of aren't really translatable, but, you know, we'll sort of end up seeing... It's, it's not how I was picturing her based on the description of the text, but it does work. It bring, it definitely yeah. brings across the same ideas. It does. Um, I don't know why. Oh, I think it's from one of the pictures at the head of the chapter that, that I pictured that she had brown hair. But I also don't think that my she will erase my image, maybe like that I have in my head. Mm-hmm. Maybe I will um, well, the, the image after from the I chat- see the movies. The, the image from the chapter starter is more like, you know, Scarface Miami circa, like, early 80s mm-hmm. in terms of style that they're going with. Yeah. 
And she changed a little bit over the course of the series. So I don't remember if this is earlier or later. This is really good radio, I know, too. But um, (laughs) (laughs) people can pull these up, too. We'll post them all. It's a very weird green quill that she has. Um, we'll, We'll sort of have to. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It's a similar uh, kind of loud theme they're going with. Yes. Though, in terms of just her fashion just, just screams as, bright, as loud as her personality. Yeah. Yes. Um, but they, yeah. instead of the magenta, they have gone with a sort of acid green. Um, yeah. Mm. Lots of greens. Mm-hmm. I think to go along with the alligator skin person, maybe they dropped the purse and went with the, here's more alligator things that she can wear. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, sorry to ask, interrupt, but that is maybe, a, I, ask, I think ask, this is a better a better portrayal than what is actually described in the books. Yeah. I, I just typically ignore the fact that everybody's wearing robes. I, I, yeah. I just typically put that in my head, particularly now that I know that Barty Crouch isn't wearing ropes a lot of the time too yeah. um so wait you're you're instituting your own fiction ra- uh, over what is written in the book as a reasonable thing to do both of you are doing it i am vindicated <laughs> no we don't rewrite entire sentences bj <laughs> <laughs> I, I this is a firm moment of i reject your reality and substitute my own bj <laughs> uh do we have any doubts at all? And I know that they're putting out a certain degree of mystery as to what Hagrid's scrut source is, and that's a really fun thing to say now that I actually have said it out loud. <laughs> uh, but Hagrid's source of all prior magical creatures were he was drunk in a bar and there was someone there with, an, with a magical creature. Yeah. Do we have any reason to believe it's any more involved for the scruts? No. I mean, this is like, he's Jack and the Beanstalk with a lot more alcohol. <laughs> The things he acquires. Mm. Uh, also, oh God, please tell me we get to hear Hagrid's interview later. Hagrid's interview with Rita Skeeter seems like it would just be a joy to experience. It, it gets published. Yeah, I, I think your it's a joy is like, she's just going to tear him a new one and you're not going to be happy. I'm going to be entertained by that too. <laughs> it's gonna, She writes in a way that is going to be entertaining no matter what it's tearing down or building up. I think it might be as soon as the next chapter that we get it. Good. Oh, joy. It is interesting to see um, Hermione essentially, Hermione and Dobby essentially serving as this book series version of like Norma Ray, of where there's such an element of like unionizing that's going into this. Mm -hmm. Of where there is a hope that, you know, we're going to lead the house elves into this kind of new day moment, overcome their oppressors, whatever else. It's fascinating to see the increased amount of just disappointment that Hermione brings to bear as she realizes upon dealing with these people that, oh, there are generations of psychology here that I can't just put a Band-Aid on. Yeah. Also, really interesting how insensitive she is to Winky. Like, oh, yeah. Like, it's just, I mean, obviously, like, there is, Hermione isn't as socially adept as she might be, and, and so there is some of that, like, which you could excuse some of it, but, like, she should know by now like I would assume that some of the interactions that she's having with Dobby like aren't appropriate to have with Winky and she's just bullheadedly going forward and just making Winky have one of the worst days that she's probably had in a couple, you know, maybe not ever because clearly there are some really traumatizing moments that she's experienced, mm-hmm. um, but in weeks, so. Yeah, Hermione with a cause is... Um... <laughs> You're you're going along with it, come hell or high water, and it doesn't matter how you feel. About yeah, it. We, we, we've discussed positive and negative traits of House Gryffindor and how each of them represent their own ways. 
self-righteous seems like a bit of a consistent negative trait of Gryffindors. Yeah. That kind yeah. of just self-centered protagonist morality of uh, my cause is just because it is mine and all shall follow. It plays out a lot for them and Hermione it plays out in the when she's convinced she has a noble cause she doesn't necessarily think about how everyone's going to bear with it or how what the actual groundwork of it is. Mm-hmm. You could say she's on a crusade. Just a bit. Uh, Professor Trelawney predicting death would be at this point, Professor Trelawney not predicting death would be more interesting <laughs> than her predicting death. Because every single... This would be the most disappointing, you know, like, uh, horoscope column ever. <laughs> like, for every horoscope for every day, it would just be death, death, painful death, exciting death, romantic death, also death. Give us something different, please. It's not working. The, the boy's still alive. <laughs> I mean, it does remind me of uh, Robin Williams' stand-up special from, like, 2000, where, you know, it's this old lady from Louisiana that's, you're gonna you die. Gonna die. <laughs> and that's that's what I get from Trelawney. Yeah. That's such a great comedy special. <laughs> uh, Dobby in his clothes was actually a really fascinating thing to unpack, because... The clothes indicate freedom. Mm -hmm. The clothes indicate that he's in control of his own life. So the fact that he's wearing this just, you know, rubbish bin of clothes is in some way remarkably inspiring because it is him picking his own future and fate and expression in a way that he never could before. Mm -hmm. That he's a free elf. He can pick his own clothes. He's doing so. It's a nightmarish concoction, but it's his own choice in a way he's never had before. And that's, you know, heartwarming in its own weird, still twisted, deeply painful way that Dobby expresses himself in the world. Yeah. Can we just yeah. read out this list of stuff that he's wearing real fast? Because it's like, just delightful. Do you have, do you have a I hand? do. Now, however, he was wearing the strangest assortment of garments Harry had ever seen. He had done an even worse job of dressing himself than the Wizards at the World Cup. He was wearing a tea cozy for a hat on which he had pinned a number of bright badges, a tie patterned with horseshoes over a bare chest, a pair of what looked like children's soccer shorts, and odd socks. One of these Harry saw with the black one Harry had removed from his own foot and tricked Mr. Malfoy into giving Dobby, thereby setting Dobby free. The other was covered in pink and orange stripes. All also perfectly maintained. Yes. The man is immaculate in terms of the mm-hmm. quality of his clothing because he has prided it. He's one of the only he's the only house elf who's ha- that we've seen, and maybe one of the few in the world, that is consciously, voluntarily, and happily in this state of life. Mm-hmm. Ish. And yeah. I say ish because now we have the idea of the two of them employed at Hogwarts. Now they're getting paid, but let's well, unpack the Dobby idea of Dobby negotiate. <laughs> Dobby's getting paid, Winky may eventually. But Dobby negotiated down his salary, Mm -hmm. like, a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, he was going to get paid what I assume is a pretty substantial amount of money of, like, 10 galleons a week. That seems like a lot. That seems seems more than, like, the Ron's family has, like, ever (laughs) in the bank. I I think, like, like when they went to their vault, they didn't have any, like, galleons in it. It was all the the smaller coinage that was hanging Mm -hmm. around. Newts and whatever's. Dumbledore was offering him a king's salary when it comes to this kind of thing, and Toppy said no, with the reason being, and Sarah, if you have it up, check me on this, but essentially it was, no, I care more about working, and I want to work. Yeah, I think that was right. I am um, yeah. finding, I, I want to find the exact... It, it, the exact was interesting, because it's, it's just a, it's a fun little psychological process to unpack that this house elf is going through. Oh yeah, hold on, so I think like, I'm here. Um, the other interesting... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, if you have it. Um, Professor Dumbledore offered Dobby 10 galleons a week and weekends off, said Dobby, suddenly giving a little shiver, as though the prospect of so much leisure and riches were frightening. But Dobby beat him down, miss. Dobby likes freedom, miss, but he isn't wanting too much, miss. He likes work better. 
That's just such an interesting little thing to unpack. Mm-hmm. Because he was offered a salary. It wouldn't interfere with his process of getting a job. It's not like he's, you know, putting out a number in the world and seeing what bids he gets. Mm-hmm. But though he, out of a certain degree of pride at his position, wants to be paid, he clearly is still struggling with it in, ter- in, in terms of how he functions in the world. Same as when he's trying to reveal secrets about other people and starts to go back into his prior routine of hurting himself, even though he's ha- happy and proud about the fact that he can reveal their secrets now. Yeah. So, yeah, Dobby's an interesting character in just terms of watching him go through and how it isn't, as much as Hermione wants to make this a clean process, it isn't. They've been essentially enslaved for generations upon generation to the point that they don't even know what free is. And it takes somebody like Dobby expressing it in a way that comes like he fell into a bit of a, you know, goodwill goodwill bin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other thing that I find interesting, um, and I'm not super clear about the origin of this, but like, his interaction with Dumbledore, I can't tell if some of it is Dumbledore just like does things and has like no grounding in the world. So it was just like, 10's a good number, let's make it galleons. <laughs> or if there was something more there mm-hmm. and whether like he knew this would sort of get out and it's a teaching moment for some of the kids that he talks to or something like that. And and it it's yeah. never clear and it's never a, well, why not both? Sure. Um, but I'm also sort of, I don't remember if it said outright, but did who uh, instigated the meeting? Or did Dumbledore sort of know that this was a thing and it was like, something should be done about this? Wasn't clear to me. Yeah, I don't think it's clear. I think that Dobby said that they came, I think he said they came to Hogwarts, but it's not it clear implied, if they were like. If it was on invitation yeah. or it was just the only place they could go. I mean, yeah. they, they said they couldn't find work anywhere else, and I interpreted it that they came to Hogwarts just because they knew there were other house elves already employed. Yeah. yeah. Or like, employed. I, I sort of imagine that they were sort of in Hogsmeade or somewhere else, because like, they have to obviously be in a wizard-centric area. Right. And so it's basically people's houses are Hogsmeade, and Hogwarts is like all that's left. Do, do we also... I'll say, actually, I'll save that one for questions. We'll come back on questions for that one. Um, Spencer... Uh, I mean, I know we've all been talking, but any more newbies notes? I have one. Uh, Dobby's secrets and Winky's secrets. Mm-hmm. Each one of them has something that some is not, not as surprising as others. Dobby's secrets are, oh my dear God, the Malfoy family are Death Eaters. Well, is that a surprise? No, that's what I'm saying. Okay. It's like, to the surprise of no one. Be more, it'd be much more surprised if you said, no, no, they're crystal clear, crystal clean. They just have a certain hot topic fashion sense. Yeah. But it is it is interesting that Dobby's sort of muscle memory learned response is still to start mm-hmm. punishing himself. Yeah. When he tells that quote unquote secret and he has to be talked down from remember they're not your your masters anymore like you're not bound to keep right. their secrets. It's really I mean it, it's it earlier books seem to play it for laughs. This doesn't really seem to play it for mm-hmm. laughs. This plays it much more of this is trauma. This is a lot of pain and trauma that he's really trying to come to terms with. Yeah. Yeah. Which I appreciate that kind of shift, because I always felt a little bit uncomfortable with the amount of self-harm that that character was engaging yeah. in, which was seemingly played off as comedy. We talked about that a yeah. lot in the beginning of the second book, especially um, mm-hmm. when he was first mm-hmm. in Harry's room, which was like deeply uncomfortable, but we're not really in that same space anymore. Yeah. I wonder if like 
people read it and and commented about it and maybe even going back and especially for like you know as as the audience gets older it's just like okay like this is something that we should address again because of how it was addressed the last time around yeah Mm -hmm. it's hard hard to go full tom and jerry and something else you're intended to take seriously um winky secrets are fascinating though because they tie together some little interesting threads we've already been having Mm-hmm. Of where Winky previously worked for Barty Crouch, who has apparently said repeatedly that uh, I'm blanking on his name. Director Bagman, Bagman. yeah, Ludo Bagman is a bad man, mm-hmm. not an incompetent man, not a buffoon, not a fool, a bad man. Or did she mishear it and it's just Bagman? <laughs> ba- ba- but then in the conversation would have been Bagman is a bagman, which is <laughs> what do we put? What do we unpack out of that? Uh, but what this ties into is. The kind of odd scene that we had with him back during the um, World Cup, whatever mm-hmm. I'm liking, I always, I always mislabel whatever that could have been. It's, it's the World Cup. Oh, it's the World Cup. <laughs> hey, okay. Uh, of when the Death Eaters were marching, mm-hmm. the sign went up in the sky of Voldemort, mm-hmm. and the first person that they came across was a confused bagman that was wandering through the woods that then they said, what happened? And he said, the fools, I'll get them, or something like that, and ran off in the mm-hmm. woods. We also know one of his employees was missing, and he did not give a shit. Mm-hmm. Which everybody just interpreted as him being, you know, an incompetent buffoon that only cares about the sport and not in any degree the administration. Now hearing this other bit of data, an insidious element of Bagman continues to rise over this story that I feel like I need to put a pin in and come back to. We sort of have a reverse of never attribute uh, something to uh, not caring that you could equally contribute to Malice. And this is like, well, this is like the, the name of the game in this series, like incompetence and and seems to be a cover for malice more often than the other way around (laughs) so a note for that one for later but that's actually all the ones i've got sarah points this time around who wins and who loses this chapter it feels like you've got some options i think that there are you know given the number of scenes that we have there are certainly some options um Mm -hmm. you know and i can i can throw a few out but i do I do believe I have who my winners and losers of the chapter are. Um, Please. Okay. You know, I think that as we talked about in the very beginning of this episode, this chapter was really a build up to one important scene. Um, and our winners mm-hmm. and losers should come from that scene. And Fair. You know, I think that we have squashed right up against each other, Dobby and Winky, um, who seem to be existing on polar opposite ends of the spectrum at this moment. Uh, but I do think that we should, in in my mind, Dobby is a clear winner of this chapter, and Winky is is having the worst of all possible runs. She's yeah. having a full on self loathing identity crisis. It, we that's we see her in the kitchens again, and it is I will spoil this right now. It is not better. And as you said, watching Hermione just try to you know just uh, there there she, she'll get over it. it was rough to see just because yeah yeah this is and she's like instigating this. And, you yeah, know, she's like, oh, Winky, like, how do you feel about this completely traumatizing event? Yeah. Tell, tell us how happy you are. Yeah. She, she, she's doubling down on it because Winky effectively just annoys her because she's not proving her cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, they, they want to be free. They want to be happy. It's like, you know, that's a long road you're trying to walk here. And the first step is a doozy. Yeah. Yep. Um, so like I said, I do think that there are other, like, there are other nominees. To your point, Spencer, uh, Neville had... 
I think we got some heartwarming mm-hmm. ne- moments from Neville. Ron being back yeah. in Harry's fold seems to have been pretty good for him. He ends up with an armful of treats yep. from the house elves. Like, that's pretty nice. Mm-hmm. There are... uh, Fred and George had some really good times this chapter. Yes. They, you know, informed other people about their, their back doors to the kitchens. They Success they with have the canary creams. canary cream puffs. <laughs> um, Feels like it's almost more of a struggle to say who else lost other than Winky. Yeah. But he also had a pretty good day other than one semi-squash blast and it's screwed, but I don't think they get in, uh, into the running. And some, yeah. some unnamed Hagrid's students. about to have a bad day. Probably. But not yet. Not within the bounds of this chapter, though. Mm. Exactly. He's excited right now. Mm-hmm. Someone's paying mm. attention to him. They want to give him a full interview. Yeah, anytime Hagrid gets excited, something is going to go wrong. Oh. Yeah. Well, they didn't with the dragons, so yet, at least. Well... Yes, but it was engineered to go wrong. Fair enough. All right, questions. Uh, (laughs) This is just a confirming we didn't see it at some point, but how did Dobby and Winky get in touch with each other? I don't, I don't know, really. Like, I have this theory theory that, like, a lot of the magical things are connected, similar to the pictures, and so there's a bit of house elves pass the word and talk to each other. I mean, they're very magical and wander about sort of as... At whim, so mm-hmm. I wonder if that's some of it. And I think um, I also imagine that somebody told Dobby about it because this is a thing about him now that he is free. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I just want to make sure I wasn't forgetting a scene. Suddenly they're together when they vaguely discussed each other, but nevertheless it's been seen in the same scene. Yeah, I feel like Dobby heard about Winky's plight from somewhere, maybe even one of the like families he was trying to get employed at, because like it doesn't in the in this chapter, Winky does not present to me as someone who is like out taking proactive steps in the world. Like see she seems like she was probably just sitting somewhere and he had to come find her. And, like, dragged her along yeah, on this. The, the even more horrifying thought I was having for it is that she was trying to offer up her services for free of all kinds of places, but because she has a black mark effectively on her resume, yeah. no one would take her in. I'm, I'm sure that's why she can't find even work. Worse. Yes. I am absolutely positive that that's why she can't find work. Whether she was actively, like, had the wherewithal to actively be working, be looking for work before she teamed up with Dobby, I'm not, I don't know. Hard um, to say. Yeah. Okay. Um, you got one? I mean... I I did sort of pose a question earlier that I think is much more of a long-form discussion, um, which is, like, what did magic look like back in the day? Because things have gotten very stereotyped, and, uh, like, clearly there are things that progress. We talked a little bit about it with magic items, but the gestures and words to magic, I imagine, is something that has progressed and is somewhat recent, whereas, um, you know, Slytherin... Uh, Gryffindor, Ravenclaw, like mm-hmm. those magicians probably did very different things. I mm-hmm. imagine that Avakavadra is one of the oldest stereotype spells um, mm-hmm. just because it's tapping into a big... J.K. Rowling was tapping into a big history of Abracadabra mm-hmm. when she chose that. Whereas a lot of these others sort of... I imagine that uh, Cruciate and Leviosa probably were... Like, they're obviously coming from Greek and Latin, so maybe they were also developed, like, a while ago. But presumably there are other things that are more recently developed, and I just imagine that back in the day there was a lot more of the, like, things happened, and having very clear control over it was uncommon. It almost seems like for this kind of setting, this seems almost like a trope of fantasy settings in general, is that it's science before, like, the Age of Enlightenment, mm-hmm. of where a lot of people are experimenting with new things, but they're doing it privately and they're hoarding it. 
And that element of not kind of sharing or writing it down or just openly expressing your ideas it has an inherent kind of stifling effect on the world growing rather than just the individuals making powerful artifacts that are then passed down without anybody understanding how they work. Yeah, I feel like we even get a little bit of a hint of that with some of the Sorting Hats songs that mm. the, you know, Gryffindor's kind of idea to begin Hogwarts as a school for magical learning was like kind of revolutionary in and of itself. Like that may not have existed um, or at least not existed in England. I don't know what, you know, things like Durmstrang and Bobaton. Yeah. Um, we might have looked up dates for that in a different pod. But, um, you know, the way the Sorting Hat talks about it is sort of like, well, this wasn't really ha- this wasn't really happening before, but we need a systemi- systematized way of teaching young people, young witches and wizards, like how to do the magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And right. I imagine that like some of that is to prevent people accusing, like presumably there were people ganging up on wizards and wishes, mm-hmm. but also like the amount of power that they just leak into the world as things happen yeah. is probably also a significant problem. I mean, we get some of that with Harry, like at the zoo mm-hmm. and other things like that, which... It, it, it seems like it would have both elements of like, you know, maintaining the vampire masquerade and also like the SALT Treaty for regulating nuclear weapons. <laughs> yeah, both sides I've... of those provide good justifications for mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've joked about it before, but the... Uh... X-Men link to this, I think is like really appropriate where uh, Xavier's school for gifted youths. Youths, there we go, thank you. Uh, Like this is kind of like that thing where it's just like, okay, you're really powerful and we need to keep you away from everybody else. Mm -hmm. But also like we want to teach you how to do things with the power that you have. Yeah, right. And also if you're going to be... Your options for being a teacher in a magical, magical setting are either a school or being a hermit living on a cliff somewhere. If you got to teach, school sounds more comfortable. You got house elves, you got a sorting hat you can talk to, a phoenix flies by every now and then. It's great. Much better than just drafty hill that people climb up to see you. Okay, but of all people to be referencing that, I feel like Dumbledore as a hermit is 100% like he probably would have kind of preferred it because enough people would come in that he could just talk at them. <laughs> I don't know. If Dumbledore had been there, he would have tried to talk the uh, founders out of it, clearly. (laughs) Can't they all just come to me and I can be weird at them in a cave somewhere? (laughs) I just want to be Socrates sitting on a hill. Is that that so wrong? Um, Question, the book seems to be setting up that a lot of the house held way of going about their lives is more cultural, but I just want to make sure of that. Or do we interpret how they are got this happiness and slavery thing. Is that purely cultural and generations of work going into that? Or is there an element of a species or species inclination or magical impetus upon them? I don't think that there's a, I don't think there's a, that there's a magical impetus upon them in the sense that like they are being compelled to do this work by like the families that they serve or anything like that. Um, I don't think that we get any of that, but it's a little it's a little blurry whether it is entirely cultural or whether there is like some sort of species specific something mm. the argument for the latter is certainly made um by people you would not like to associate with in this world um particularly sure. in later books although you know there is you do see people like the weasleys also kind of falling into that trap too where even how they explain it to like Harry and Hermione, is 
is blurry in what they really think about, you know, where where this contentment in servitude comes from. So I don't know. I don't I don't think we get a clear answer on it. Well, the, the cultural suggests generations upon generations of slavery. So it's yes. a lot easier to just say that, no, no, they're just house elves. House elves are that way. Yes. Rather than accept, why are house elves that way? Yeah. Because the conditioning yeah. goes both I mean, ways in that point, you know, like the wizards are being sure. continually conditioned to accept this as the natural order of things. I mean, but like pulling from brownies and, and like repairing shoes and stuff like that, there is some like outside of Harry Potter things in- that we're indeed. pulling from where mm-hmm. like this house elf brownie, you know, whatever creatures that you're that you have these like semi contractual like interactions with mm-hmm. is scut work yeah sure and and so when you're roaming the forest and you encounter a fae you don't expect he's going to be really obsessed with law and order you have certain you have certain you know assumptions that go into how they're going to carry themselves Mm-hmm. Though at the same time, the Good Samaritan story is a very old story of literature, too. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Well, this was a lot of fun. We are going into chapter 22. Yes. Uh, which is the unexpected task, which seems very weird because they were told to expect a task when it was going to be. <laughs> not just not what it was. So I'm wondering if there's a little bit of switching going on or just Harry Potter is so caught up with himself that it is unexpected to him for and surprise to no one else uh, and looking at this chapter image i have no idea what i'm supposed to get out of this <laughs> there is a woman in the background with really long hair that's wrapped around a character i'm not sure i've ever met before that's maybe. that's ron okay i was thinking it might be yeah. ron there was an element of freckles and maybe yeah. red hair there okay it's a vila i understand now <laughs> yeah we got there he's getting entangled you know me, it takes, it takes a bit of time, but I get there. <laughs> we like when it happens on <laughs> air, Spencer. <laughs> figure out what he's going to do with his garbage. Oh, so, boy. Okay. Oh, well, that'll God. be fun All to right. discuss with you next Ow. time. Oh. Double face palm. All right. Y'all, this is fun. It was until it wasn't. Yeah.